Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Jacob. You can read his story from Genesis chapter 25. Mike, um, Jacob's parents, who were they? They were Isaac and Rebecca. And after many years of barrenness, they were blessed with twin boys, one of whom was the guy we're looking at, Jacob, and the other, his elder brother, Esau. Were they different, quite different? Very, very different characters as they grew up. Interestingly enough, that seemed to be prophesied even from the beginning. Perhaps we'll come back to that in a moment, but very different. Esau was very much a... A man's man, as we used to say. He was out there doing all the rugged stuff. He was a hunter. He loved hunting for game. Whereas Jacob was much more, the story shows, as much more of a mummy's boy, stay-at-home uh, type of character. So I know that's perhaps a, a little bit putting them into categories for us these days, but that's very much how they would have been seen. Well, that's how the Bible days. portrays them. Exactly. Mm, mm. So uh, the difference then in terms of where they spent their time and, and as they grew up, how did that affect how their parents treated them? Well, I think Esau's dad, uh, you know, many dads, they've got vision for their kids to be certain things, haven't we? Probably more so in those days. Remember, Esau was the eldest. The firstborn. The firstborn. So he would be expected to be the, the new patriarch, the new leader of the extended family. So that was going to mean he would need to be a tough guy. He would need to be able to hunt. He'd need be, to be able to lead and things like that. So perhaps that's why dad invested that bit more in him when he saw that sort of character. Whereas Jacob, a softer, quieter boy, more thoughtful, more reflective, um, he was his mum's favourite, both of the parents had favourites, uh, mm, and mm. that was not good at all as the two of them grew up, led to lots of rivalries between them. So Jacob, as he grows up, gets something of a what reputation compared to Esau? Yes, I think so. I mean, the interesting thing is that we're told in Genesis 25, God actually says to them when he promises them that they're going to have these twins, that you're going to have twins and the two sons in your wombs are going to become two nations, which, which they will do. And from the beginning, these two nations will be rivals, God said. Well, they, they really were as they grew up. And here's the interesting point in that prophecy. God said, one nation will be stronger than the other and your older son will serve the younger. Now, that's not how it was done in those days. The oldest was the one who had the birthright, he would be expected to lead the extended family from there on. But God had said, no, the older will serve the younger. Now, I'm sure the parents must have told their kids about that. I'm absolutely sure Rebecca must have told Jacob, her favourite, about it. But it's interesting that rather than wait for God to do it, Jacob will get into a bit of wheeling and dealing and manipulating to make that happen. And whenever we try and do that, we always end up in trouble. So was he a bit of a schemer, do you mean? He absolutely was a schemer. Uh, we get two stories. In Genesis 25, we get the story where Esau sells his birthright to him. Now, the birthright was the right of the firstborn to be the head of the family 
when the father died. He had a bigger share because he had to care for the extended family. Uh, and one day Esau comes in from the field. He's been hunting. He's he's thirsty. He's starving. And and he comes and he, he sees his brother uh, Jacob making a stew. And he says, give me some of that stew. And here's the first scheming. Jacob says, sure, sure, brother. I'll give you some in exchange for your birthright. And his brother said, what, what good's a birthright to me? I'm starving, man. Just give me the stew now. Big lesson there about our giving in to needs and desires and temptations and not thinking the long term. And clearly not a fair exchange. Clearly not a fair exchange at all. A bowl of stew in exchange for being the head of the family. So he's, he's a bit of a tricker, a bit of a twister, this guy. And then he will do it again because as his father uh, Isaac is getting older and is getting to the point of death and he feels it's time to give the patriarchal blessing on his eldest son. He calls for Esau, the eldest twin, and says, listen, I, I know my time's coming. Please just go out and get me some of that game that you know I love so much. Kill some, bring it back, make me some of your fantastic stew, and then I will lay hands on you and pray the patriarchal blessing that will confirm you as the future leader. And so off he goes. And while that's happening, his mum, Rebecca, is overhearing. You know, she's the other side of the tent or something. Here's this going on and goes to Jacob, her favourite, and says, listen, this is our moment. So she's as much of a twister as well at the moment for her favourite. And she says, let's make some stew. I'll make it just like I know your brother makes it. And then you go in and, and pretend to be your elder brother. And he says, but mom, we're really different. My, my brother's a hairy man and I've got smooth skin. So there was one big difference straight away. Mm. And she said, we'll get some animal skins. We'll put them on your forearms. And then your father, who by this stage is almost blind, perhaps cataracts, not good sight anymore. We'll put animal skins on your arms, which shows how hairy his brother must have been, mm. doesn't it? Mm. And we'll send you in with the stew. And so as he goes in, he says, is, is that you, my son, Esau? And he says, yes, it is, Dad, even though it isn't. And he said, hmm, he said, doesn't sound quite right. The, the smell's right because his mum had put his brother's clothes on him. Perhaps he wore nicer, more fresh clothes as opposed to the boy who went out hunting. He said, hmm, the clothes smell right, but the voice sounds like Jacob's. No, no, it really is me, Dad. And he gives his father the stew and then his father lays hands upon him and gives him the patriarchal blessing. And as we saw in a previous episode, once the patriarch had given his blessing, they believed in the power of words in those days. And so once the blessing to be the future patriarch was given, it was given. So now twice he's tricked into getting what God had already said from in the womb was going to be his anyway. What a stupid thing to do to try and manipulate to get what God has already promised you. Then his brother will come back from the field and cook the stew and say, Dad, I've got you the stew. And suddenly the penny drops and his old blind dad says, and who gave me the other stew? And suddenly it all comes out. And he says, but Dad, have you got no blessing for me? And he has to say, son, yeah, all that's left for you is that you're going to live far away from us and you're going to end up living by the sword and, you know, you'll be subject to your brother, but one day you will break free. And so here's a 
a blessing, a prophecy of some of the hostility that will come. Didn't make for good relationships between the twins, as you can guess. No, and so Jacob and his mother sort of conspired together. But what a thing for Jacob to do against his father. It is pretty bad, isn't it? And particularly when you think in the culture of the time and the esteem with which a father of the family would be held. And what's even more stupid, again, is is what I've already said, that there was this promise already given by God that the elder will serve the younger. And here's an example of him trying to help God out, help the promise come to pass. We'll see this again and again in the patriarchs. We saw it in the episode on Abraham, when Abraham tries to help God out when he doesn't have the son of promise. God is well able to work his own promises out. Yes, he wants our cooperation, but he does not need our manipulation. So in the overall scheme of things, and you said that the, those two boys would represent nations, what actually happened ultimately? Uh, what will happen ultimately is that it will be through Jacob that the descendants, the ancestors of Israel will come. He will be the one through whom the line of Israel comes. And through his brother Esau, who was also given the name Edom, which mm-hmm. means red. So that red stew he must have made, you know, must have been pretty famous. Yeah, there's a theme he, there, isn't he there? He gets yeah. named after the stew, you know. Right. I mean, fancy being called beef stew or something like that. <laughs> and as Edom, he will become the founder of the Edomites, who keep recurring in Israel's history. And there will be continual hostility. They're not always outright enemies, but they're absolutely, there's hostilities between the two. And this will go right down through Israel's history. Sort of thorn in the side for the Israelites. Absolutely. And you know what? Jacob deserved it. If he'd done it God's way, and very often we end up bringing our own thorns in our sides through manipulating or trying to make things happen rather than trusting God and waiting God's time. Just a little detail while it's on the mind there. Why were the Israelites called Israelites when it was through Jacob's line? Why weren't they called the Jacobites? (laughs) Because that would be very confusing for English history later on. No, (laughs) not the reason at all. Because as we've seen before in previous episodes, Jacob's name gets changed. And he'll have an encounter with God that will lead to his name being called Israel. But maybe we could just fill in a bit of the story before that happens. Mm. Um, Clearly, there's hostility between the two brothers. And his mum says, look, the best thing you can do is, is run. So he goes where? He goes back to where the family has come from that we've seen previously as well. He goes back to Mesopotamia, to a, a town called Padan Aram. So well, hundreds of miles to yes, the Yes, hundreds to the east. of miles away. He's, he just has to flee. He wants to get away. And he goes to family there. And he, there with his family, he, he'll meet his uncle Laban. And uh, Uncle Laban is a bigger trickster than Jacob is. <laughs> it runs in the family. It must have run in the family. Because he will trick Jacob, and the one who tricked will himself get tricked, which is a great reminder to us, because it would be easy to say, well, maybe God doesn't mind scheming, wheeler dealing, 
you know, cheating, things like that. Oh, yes, because as we read on in the story, the, the trickster will himself so there are get tricked. implications for the deceiver. Absolutely, because the deceiver will end up getting cheated. His uncle Laban uh, has some pretty daughters, and Jacob will say, oh, you know, uh, can I marry Rachel? And the uncle says, yeah, sure, but just work for me for seven years first. That's a long time. Mm. So he works for seven years, and then on the marriage night, Laban substitutes Rachel for Leah, who's frankly not as pretty and seems to have squiffy eyes. Who's she? She is her sister. Oh. So two of his daughters. And he does a swap on the marriage night. Now, we think in our day, how on earth would they know? Well, at the marriage ceremony, the bride wore a big heavy veil. And it was only taken off in the marital chamber. And it would have been dark. And he ends up, before he knows it, he's laying with this other woman. And he wakes up the next morning. Can you imagine it? <laughs> Waking up that you've not married the one. He went and he goes back to his uncle and said, you tricked me. And his uncle said, yeah, well... I couldn't give you Rachel because it's our custom to give the eldest daughter away first, so I had to give it her. But I'll tell you what, you can have Rachel as well. Just work for me another seven years. So the guy has to now work for him another seven years. That's 14 years. And doesn't have an option. Doesn't have an option. Well, I suppose he could have gone and lived with the squinty-eyed one, but he'd really <laughs> taken a fancy to the other one. And it seems that she really was very pretty. And so he has to work for a further seven years years and after 14 years he's saying come on uncle laban it's time i want to go back now you know i think it's time for me to face the family back home and there's a whole load more trickery goes on in the story but to get to the bit you were asking me about it's on his way back that he suddenly realizes what on earth is my brother esau gonna say when i come having tricked him out the birthright and so he sends uh, much of his uh, wealth and family and flocks ahead and sort of says, here's my gifts, brother. He's trying to pave the way. Bit of a bribery. Bit of a bribery. I think it's definitely um, a bribery. And, and he ends up with um, this encounter with what's called the angel of the Lord on his way back. Suddenly he's alone. All the others have gone ahead. And, you know, I think all of us have those points in life where it's just me and God. And fellowship and support is great. But the point comes when all of us, it's just like me and God, what are we going to say? And this angel of the Lord, who might have been a physical manifestation of the Lord himself, suddenly starts to wrestle with him. They have this wrestling match. <laughs> right through the night and they wrestle together until daybreak but until it, till the sun comes but, up. but a little bit of fisticuffs going on yeah it's it's, it's a, a true wrestling match and it starts from the evening going right through to dawn so this is not like this is not even two rounds or 10 rounds this is a major wrestling match with some incarnation not Jesus probably, but the angel of the Lord, as the New Old Testament often calls it. And they wrestle. And Jacob won't give in with this guy. And they wrestle and they wrestle and they wrestle. And eventually, this guy says, let me go. It's dawn. And Jacob says these powerful words, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Oh, they believed in blessing. I think by now he'd sensed this was more than a man. There's something going on here. 
And the angel of the Lord says to him, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And here eventually is the answer to your question because he says, from now on, you will no longer be known as Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel. Okay. Which means wrestler. You've fought with God. You've wrestled with God. Wrestler with God, we might say. Right. Because you've fought with men, which he has done with his uncle and his brother, and you fought with God and you've won. And suddenly he realizes at this point that it's the angel of the Lord. Now the penny drops. And so he will never forget this. And I think God does this with us at times. As a parting gift, the angel of the Lord thwacks his hip. And I'm sure he went, ow, that's not in the text. <laughs> but we know he must have done because his hip was put out of its socket. Oh, painful. It's painful. Anyone who's had to have a hip operation will know how painful it gets when your hip's playing up. And for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp. And it's as if God is saying to him, Jacob, now called Israel, the one who has wrestled with God, the one who's going to be the father of my people. I want you to never forget that day you wrestled with me and you discovered you couldn't win. You put up a good fight with the angel, but you couldn't win, could you, all night? And you've tricked people, but you'll never out-trick God. You'll always find God has got the last wrestling move. And that limp would remind him ever thereafter of his need to be dependent on God. And so he sets off limping the rest of the way to encounter his brother Esau. I think you told me in another episode that as he came out of the womb, along with Esau, who was first, he was holding on to his brother. Yes. Almost wrestling with his brother. It's almost like it was there from the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, we're told that when the twins were born, often they come together very quickly. Sometimes there's a little time, but these two, Esau was born first. But as he came out, there was this little hand grabbing hold of his, of his heel. And there was his brother Jacob coming out after him. And it was almost from within the womb. This, this guy was a wrestler. This guy was a grasper. But the lesson that he had to learn was that, listen, you might, you might wrestle, you might outsmart people, but you will never outsmart God. And the sooner you learn, you don't outsmart God. And the sooner you line up, the less hips I'll have to knock out of joint. <laughs> And there's been quite a lot of name changing going on, but the significance of that, I guess, is very important. It wasn't just a name change for the sake of it. No, and all the name changes are significant. Sometimes the name itself has a meaning. Abram, exalted father, becomes Abraham, father of many. Sarai, his wife, and Sarah were just two alternatives of the same name. So sometimes there was a significance in the name, but the real significance was the fact that God had changed it. It was like a new beginning. I suppose in Christian terminology, it's when someone might be born again or they get baptized. Here is a mark of a new beginning. And the change of name for them was the mark of a new beginning. And for him, it would be as he would have to go back, face his brother. And in fact, the two are reconciled, which is amazing, really. <laughs> and they're reconciled. 
but he has to be back there. Why does he have to be back there? Because Canaan is the place where God was going to fulfill his promise. He'd said to Abraham two key things. I'll give you a family that will one day fill the earth, and I'll give you this land from which they will fill the earth. And so it's no good just having the family. The family has to be back and in the right place. So that's how we end up with the Israelites rather than the Jacobites. And that descend, the descendants then of the now renamed Jacob to, to Israel, there's a whole family tree uh, that kicks in, I guess. Yes, there is a whole family tree. And this is where in the Bible story, the family really starts to grow and develop. Is that where the 12 tribes of Israel actually begin? It is, begin? but not all of them will come from the same mother. Right, because Jacob's married Rachel at this stage. Yeah, and we've already heard that he'd married Leah first. Okay. So he's got two wives. So from Leah, that first wife, he'll have some of the sons that will become the founders of some of the tribes of Israel. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah... Issachar, Zebulun, they have a daughter as well who's mentioned, Dinah, mm-hmm. but obviously in that patriarchal culture, she doesn't figure. So all those boys and a daughter from from a, Leah, from a wife he didn't really want to marry. Absolutely. Interesting, isn't it? Because it's like God gave rich blessing there. The interesting thing is that Rachel, who's the one that he chooses once again, is barren. This theme that keeps coming through. The story is God keeps pressing these key characters to trust in him. And so he will have children through others as well. They've got two servant girls in the family. They've got one called Bilhah, who's Rachel's servant. Dan and Naphtali will come through her. Uh, Zilpah is Leah's servant girl. Gad and Asher will come from them. So all those boys make up 12 sons. They make up 10. 10. Because Rachel will eventually have Joseph and Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And this will give us the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Israel, alias Jacob, Mm -hmm. become the 12 tribes. 12 sons become the founding fathers of what we will know in Old Testament history as the 12 tribes. So this is an immensely important part in the story because what's happening is the promise made to Abraham is starting to unfold and get fulfilled. God had promised a growing family. Do you remember as as many descendants as the seashore, stars in the sky? Mm. Well, they're not there yet, but suddenly it's like there's multiplication coming, growth coming. And of course, each of these 12 sons who'll become the head of 12 tribes, they will also begin to expand. Mm. So Mm. that progress and expansion is now well underway. So 12 sons from four mothers to one father. Yes. That's how it was then. That's how it was. Very unusual to us, isn't it? The thing is, God is working out a story here through history, through culture. He's taking the culture of the time. Sometimes he will use it. Sometimes he'll work against it. But our God is a God of history because God is not just the God of today. He's the God of yesterday. He's the God of tomorrow. And so we've got this whole story slowly unfolding from the early part of the 
or the late part, rather, of the third millennium BC with Abraham right through and the story unfolding of a promise to Abraham, who has a son called Isaac, who has a son called Jacob, who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel that will grow and multiply and take this story through history and through the many cultures and the ups and downs that that will include. And yet God carrying out his purpose through all of it. You said that Jacob, before he became Israel, or soon after maybe, came back and was reconciled with his brother Esau. Yes. But how did that family relationship develop? In Genesis 29, he comes back and has this encounter with his brother. And the two are reconciled again. And um, exactly what will happen from all of these branches of the family, I don't know. We're, we're not told every single thing. We encounter them sometimes from time to time. But the main focus of the Bible story is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who come through. And yeah, by chapter 33, they're making peace together. And it doesn't necessarily mean living together. Having made their peace, we then read towards the end of uh, chapter 33 that Jacob buys a plot of land and he, he moves on. So it's a big land. There's plenty of room for both of them. For a season, they're both developing in their own So they're not ways. rubbing shoulders with each other, you know, bumping into one another. No, absolutely not. And I wonder if there was just a measure of reality, you know. Um, sometimes you can reconcile with someone, but sometimes it just needs a bit of space and a bit of time. And you said, actually, earlier that Esau was also known as Edom, and that was uh, the origins of the Edomites. Yes. Where, where, where then was Edom, the place Edom? E-D-O-M, in relation to where Jacob and the 12 tribes... Yes, Edom settled. would end up settling towards the... Let me get my geography right. Towards the, the, the east and southeast of the Dead Sea area. It would be one of those areas that the Israelites would have to pass through. So eventually they will move further out of Canaan to that land south and east of it. And it will be Israel's descendants who will become the focus of the story within the promised land itself. Yeah. Now, of those 12 sons that you've mentioned, some, I guess, rise in significance more, more than others. Um, did you say the oldest was Reuben? Yes. And the youngest, I guess, would have been Benjamin. Benjamin. And he'll come up in a later episode because being the younger one, he, he becomes a bit of a favourite. I think, you know, born in later age, I think any parent who's had a child in later age knows what it's like when you suddenly get a child at that stage. And so, yeah, Benjamin will we'll have to leave that for a, an episode a little further down. But Benjamin, as the youngest, will take a special place in the Joseph stories. Mm. As you've reflected, though, on the life of Jacob, um, what in particular, you know, sort of strikes you about his life and, 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 in a sense, his legacy? Clearly, he's an important character because he becomes the father of the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. So a crucial stage in Israel's history. But just as we've seen with some of the other characters, that doesn't mean he was perfect. Didn't get everything right. A life of faith with God doesn't mean you're suddenly Mr. Perfect. And these guys certainly weren't. Think what it tells us is God uses all sorts of people 
and his sovereign purposes. But the thing that Jacob brings out to me more than anything else is that cheating, scheming, wheeler dealing, double dealing never serves a good purpose at the end. This Mr. Schemer found God saying, if you want to scheme, son, I can scheme better than anyone. And so I think it's it's an encouragement that even with our failings, God can use us when our hearts are on him. But there's also a challenge through the Jacob story of God is well able to keep his promises without your manipulation, your fiddling with the knobs, your trying to make it happen. I think it's a call to, do you know what? Why didn't he just trust? Why didn't he just wait on God rather than this scheming and manipulation? There's a verse in the New Testament that says, do not be deceived in Galatians. Everyone reaps what they sow. Do not be deceived. No one makes a fool of God. A man reaps what he sows. This guy sowed deception. He reaped the fruit of deception. And it was only the goodness and kindness of God that spared him, got him through, just like God does, turned the story around and brought something amazing. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.